Hello and welcome to another of my series of podcasts called Understanding Mental Health Conditions, Caring and Contexts. I'm Rab Houston and I'm Professor of Modern History at the University of St Andrews here in Scotland. I'm joined today by Dame Uta Frith, formerly Professor of Cognitive Development at University College London and winner of a truly awesome list of honours and awards which it would take most of the podcast to list. Hello Uta. I wrote a book with Uta a while back called Autism in History, the case of Hugh Blair of Borg. This was the story of a landowner from the southwest of Scotland soon after the second and last Jacobite Rising of 1745 to 1746. Hugh went through an arranged marriage, a union organised by his mother to spite her younger son. Hugh's brother, John, started a court case to have the marriage annulled on the grounds that Hugh was, and I use John's words, not my own, an idiot, and thus could not give the informed consent which the church deemed essential to a properly constituted marriage. John himself had married a decade earlier and had a son who he wanted alone to inherit the family estate near Kirkubri, which is to the west of Dumfries. It's a truly wonderful human story of skullduggery and family feuding. The church court, which heard the case, considered the weighty evidence of 29 witnesses who knew Hugh well in his day-to-day life, and the judges decided against him, concluding that he was indeed, their words not mine, a natural fool and void of common sense. As a result, they annulled the marriage. Now, Hugh may very well have had learning difficulties, but his main problem lay in communicating with others. That meant both hearing and speaking, neither of which he was very good at. But he also had problems relating to other people as different from himself. Hugh comes over in the court papers as dignified but aloof, almost detached from the reality of what was going on around about him. So, Uta and I collaborated, I wrote the history, and Uta diagnosed Hugh's condition which she was positive was severe autism. So I guess that signposts part of the answer to my first question, which is, what is autism, Uta, and is it a new condition? Autism is a neurodevelopmental disorder. That means it's a brain disorder. It has a genetic origin which is still quite unknown. It starts incredibly early in life and it affects the brain and the mind. It affects it very seriously. And the condition known as autism is a condition that makes it almost impossible for the person affected to lead an ordinary, normal life. They need a lot of help, a lot of support. Now, autism was always with us, clearly, but it has not been named until 
the 1940s. And it was quite independently that it was identified by two people. One in Austria, Hans Asperger, who described a series of cases that he'd come across. He found something in common with these cases that he thought pointed to a particular kind of what he called psychopathy. Actually, it doesn't mean what we now mean by psychopathy. He meant it was not a debilitating disease. He meant it was something like a personality feature. These were people who didn't fit into groups, who were loners, who were strange, and who also sometimes had special talents. But he described these first cases in such a way that we could see that each individual was very, very different. So there's a whole range of individual differences. And at the same time, in America, Leo Kanner, a psychiatrist, also became aware of children in his practice who he thought had something in common. And it was exactly the same that Hans Asperger identified. It was an inability to relate to other people. They had a reasonably good ability to relate to objects and things in the world. But that's different from people. In fact, Kanna described very vividly a child who was in his consulting room who would pay more attention to the filing cabinet than to him. So these children did not seem to be especially affected by normal human interaction and communication. Kanna too decided that in his cases he often noticed some kind of special, what he called, islet of intelligence. For example, a child who would hardly speak in a spontaneous way. He couldn't really engage in conversation, but this child had a fantastic memory and could recite things by heart that uh, you know many, many people would just not be able to remember like that. And the key is what we might call reciprocal communication. So when we communicate with each other, mostly in language, of course, it's what we do, but it doesn't have to be words. It could be signs, it could be touch, it could be some other things. When we do this, normally, it's a very fluid, unconscious turn-taking. We take into account what the other person already knows, doesn't know. We like to tell something new and interesting, not boring, same thing all over again. And with the autistic person, this seems to be missing. But when you are in an attempt to have a conversation with an autistic person, this just doesn't happen. There isn't this turn-taking and this reciprocal interplay. Thanks, Uta. That's given a clear sense of the core of autism. The problem of relating normally to other people, which leaves sufferers behaving as if they were alone in the world. 
But your replies have also opened up the sheer variety of experience, both in historic and present-day cases. You've written extensively about two things. The first is mentalizing ability, or its lack, as a prominent feature of autism. Can you explain for listeners what you mean by that, and by your other important contribution to defining autism, which is the theory of weak central coherence? So what it's about is that we automatically, unconsciously track what other people do in terms of their mental states. So what wishes they have, what intentions, what beliefs, what feelings, invisible things that we can just track. It enables us to predict from moment to moment, from millisecond to millisecond, what people are going to do next. If you don't have this GPS, you really will see the world with completely different eyes. This is metaphorically speaking because we don't, we don't have any visible, concrete evidence of what the mental states are of other people, but we act accordingly. Central coherence is when we see the big picture first, all the information flows together, like all rivers going to one thing, then we can zoom in on the detail, we can zoom out again, we can always keep the big picture at the forefront. That's what central coherence is. Weak central coherence means too much focus on the detail, not enough attention to the bigger picture, not seeing the wood for the trees. And the interesting thing is that we have experiments to show that attention zooming out for autistic people is much, much harder than zooming in. Zooming in is a natural. Okay, so put simply, mentalizing ability means recognizing that other people have intentions, aims, and tactics. And that mentalizing ability is something autistic people characteristically lack. Meanwhile, weak central coherence really means that autistic people are much better at focusing on detail than on the overall problem, or what you call the big picture. I've always been fascinated by how prevalent autism is. Hugh Blair was, after all, an individual, but there were, as far as we can see, many people like him. In the UK, we know that at least one in a hundred people have a form of autism, which means 700,000 individuals. But, of course, many more people are affected by this. So it's estimated it's about 3 million people, actually, in the UK, whose life is touched by autism. That's a lot of people who suffer or whose lives are affected by having a family member with autism. The other thing that I learned from working with you is the massive increase in the incidence of diagnosed autism and Asperger's. I wonder if you can help the listeners and help me please to account for that. 
The idea of the spectrum has uh, widened the categories and, of course, is one of the major reasons why uh, there are now so many more cases diagnosed of autistic disorder. So we have a huge increase and it's, of course, very difficult to know whether this is a real increase in the incidence of cases or whether it is merely due to this wider categorization and the greater awareness of such cases. At the moment, we cannot tell which it is. But this, while it has brought many very problematic children into the limelight and has given them also the possibility of being studied and being helped through special education, it has also had some very undesirable consequences because in some sense the whole idea of this spectrum has now resulted in autism being a, a really heterogeneous category. So it's very difficult to see what the common denominator really is and whether there is a common denominator. In fact, it looks as if it is absolutely essential to to talk about subgroups here before we can actually get at a genetic basis. So at the moment, in my view, it is actually quite hopeless to try and find a genetic basis of everything that is in this autism spectrum. Uh, on the contrary, I would advocate that we need to go for specific symptoms. For example, weak central coherence which is a style which can be found not just in uh, at least a subgroup of, of those who are on the autism spectrum, but also in their parents. Now, this could be something that has a genetic basis. Historically speaking, Asperger syndrome has come more and more into the focus of attention. More and more people are diagnosed with Asperger syndrome as opposed to autism. And the reason for this is because we can now recognize even mild variations of uh, social um, and communicative incompetence, inability in, in people that, who before that uh, would not have been considered to be in any way abnormal, but maybe considered eccentric or just very uh, socially uninterested. So Asperger syndrome is, is at the moment quite a controversial diagnosis. While there seems to be a desire to keep it within the spectrum of autistic disorders and put it perhaps at the mild end of these uh, of the spectrum with slightly less severe deficits and perhaps better abilities of compensation better intellectual abilities which of course help the compensation there is also a possibility that in the end it might have to be taken out and put into a, a special a special category trying to find out whether it also has Different biological origins, different genetic origins is, of course, yet another matter. So lots of important points in there, Uta. First, it's notoriously difficult to differentiate the underlying incidence of a condition from the changing propensity to diagnose it. This is something I get asked all the time as an historian of psychiatry. And I'm afraid I have no clear answer, except to say that I believe most mental disorders really are pan-human, and that changing perceptions explain most of the apparent rise of certain diagnoses, such as depression and anxiety, in recent times. Second, I think there could be a social and cultural influence on diagnosis.
Asperger's syndrome in particular has a special place in the popular imagination because of its possible association with high intelligence. Almost all the films ever made about autism focus on some form of special talent. Thus it can be easier to get family to accept a diagnosis of Asperger's, even if this means sadly turning a blind eye to two things. First, that only a minority of sufferers have these talents. Your own work shows that it's probably only about a third. And second, the problems of reciprocal social interaction and communication alongside rigidities in thinking, which are an integral part of the autistic spectrum. High-functioning individuals may find a niche, what you've called their compensation, but they may also struggle, as much as other autistic people, to cope with everyday life. I'm also struck by your comments about the limitations of genetic studies and the importance of working with sufferers to identify individual signs and symptoms, problems and compensations in all forms of interaction with subjects. Elsewhere you've observed that we can only explain perhaps 20% of all causes of autism by known genetic factors. As a social historian, that's how I came to be collaborating with you, and I think what you say is a valuable corrective to the biological determinism that afflicts some understandings of all mental disorders in the present day. Now, autism has a number of other distinctive characteristics. Some psychiatric conditions have only a limited endurance. In other words, people experience them and then they may go away, though they potentially do come back again. Is this also true of autism? So a neurodevelopmental disorder like autism is for life. However, the behavioural signs change with age. The behaviour cannot be listed in a catalogue so that you can say you need to show, for example, a very good memory, an inability to, um, to distinguish between a person and a piece of furniture. It's not possible to do that because the behaviour differs according to age and ability and all sorts of other things. And yet, it's the only way to diagnose autism. There is no biological test for it, as yet. Two things strike me from your reply. First of all, autism is unusual because it manifests itself very early and it's lifelong. Most of the major psychoses, such as schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, which also involve social communication impairment, onset in early adulthood. They may fluctuate in intensity and even remit. Autism, unfortunately, does not. The second thing that strikes me is the fact that there is no biological test for autism. And that brings out an enduring feature of psychiatry over the centuries, which has always given it 
something of an image problem. Because it deals with something we cannot see, the mind. And, despite efforts to standardise diagnostic tools, there remains a degree of uncertainty which characterises few other areas of medicine. Those who research and treat mental disorders need to rely to a considerable extent on judgments based on experience. So what can we do to help autistic people? However, it is true that during life, during the lifespan, children as they grow up do learn slowly and with effort and they can, some of them, adapt to society. Not in this millisecond to millisecond tracking of other people's beliefs and feelings that we need to do when we interact, but in a slower way, so that they can interact sometimes very well when it's at a distance, when they can use email. Because they can then think about the answer, they can study what you said. So this is a different form of communication, of course, that they can achieve. Well, that point about email is especially striking, and I have to say I'd never thought about it. We tend to assume that modern life brings new and unusual stresses, which can impact upon mental well-being. It's really interesting that a modern medium like email can open doors to people who struggle to manage face-to-face -face interactions in real time which is what virtually all human relationships were about until the last generation. But can all autistic people benefit from these kinds of aids? Not all of them, because a quite large proportion of autistic individuals, probably half, possibly more than half, have additional, additional neurological problems, which include very often mental retardation or learning disability, which it manifests itself as not doing very well on, on IQ tests, on tasks that you give them. It means also probably that their language is rather limited, less fluent than it might be. They quite often have epilepsy, as a condition that also needs to be treated in, in its own right and that can produce great difficulties because they don't have this easy turn-taking and alignment to other people. They often behave very badly. That's how we see it. They don't fit in. They, they seem to be misbehaving a lot of the time. They do things that social pressures in our normal life would tell us, no, it's not the thing to do now. And, and they might be very offensive to other people because they just don't particularly regard them as, you know, we, we still believe that there is some truth to Kanner's assessment that they can't tell such easily the difference between how to re relate to people and how to relate to objects in space. Okay, I see. So there remain important obstacles which autistic people face, both because of the condition itself 
and conditions associated with it, what clinicians call comorbidity. Until the mid-20th century, when the diagnosis of autism emerged, most sufferers were given other labels, such as the one I used earlier on, the word idiot, which was the normal word for centuries applied to someone with learning disability, or epileptic, a condition which alters consciousness, making sufferers seem drowsy, hazy and detached. Research has shown that both learning disabilities and epilepsy are found more commonly among autistic people than in the general population. But sadly we have run out of time. Uta, I must say that I do remember fondly the enormously stimulating discussions we had when we were writing Autism in History together. It brought a real sense of discovery and the way our different perspectives brought Hugh Blair's life and his autism into the printed word. It's been a pleasure rekindling that experience. Thanks very much for talking to me about autism today.